per usual, shout out to Athletic Brewing, the best damn non-alcoholic beer out there. Not a paid plug, but I'm a brand ambassador, and I want to celebrate this amazing product. If you head over to athleticbrewing.com, use the promo code BRENDANO20 at checkout. You can find the link in today's show notes. You can get a nice little discount on your first order. I don't get any money. They are not an official sponsor of the podcast. I just get points towards swag and beer. Give it a shot, especially the free wave. My personal fave. But yeah, sort of like sections. I try to just break it down into sections um, so that it's like, you know, when you get to the end of a thousand or 1500 words or I don't know, it could be even shorter than that or something that that feels like, okay, you like, you know, have made it to the next um, drop cap and that that, that feels important. <laughs> Hey CNFers, it's CNF Pod, the creative non-fiction podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara. Yes, yes I am. Thanks to all of those who weathered the technical shitstorm with episode 371. I still don't know entirely what happened. It somehow fixed itself uh, over the weekend. I have no guarantee that this episode, 372, will fare any better. Nevertheless, we podcast. Spoiler alert! We're playing with the Atavis this week for this midweek pod. It's too far away from Friday to to make it Friday's podcast, which is always a little bit of a bummer. I love it when these Atavis ones fall like really close to Fridays. I'm like, yes, I can just do that. Anyway, we'll be talking with editor-in-chief Saber Darby and then freelancer and social worker-to-be Anna Altman. This piece deals with compassionate release in our prisons, and one particular inmate responsible for the compassionate release of several people, but not himself. Make sure you head over to brendanomero.com for show notes and to sign up for the Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter. Just click the lightning bolt on my website or visit rageagainstthealgorithm.substack.com. First of the month, no spam, can't beat it. If you dig this show, consider sharing it with your network so we can grow the pie. The pie is shrinking. It's going the opposite direction, CNFers. Let's uh, let's keep keep that keep us from going out of business. There are CNFers out there who need the juice. I'd like to think that we can provide it. You can also leave a kind review on Apple Podcasts so the wayward CNFer might say, "All right, I'll give that a shot." And for the really intrepid CNFer, there's Patreon. <laughs> I can't even talk. No wonder why this show's slipping. Patreon.com slash CNFpod. You could drop a few bucks in the hat if you glean some value. Show is free, but it sure as hell ain't cheap. Would you like maybe office hours? Would that be kind of cool? We can, I don't know, talk book marketing or reporting or research or writing. We could try that. The CNF and patrons deserve it. All right. That's, a, that's, a, that's about it for my rambling Let's get after it with Say We're Darby first. Authors. Authors? Jeez, no one. I'm telling you, this is, I don't blame you. I don't blame you if you're done listening to this show. Your host should be better. Be better, Brendan. She's author of Sisters in Hate. She's editor-in-chief of The Atavis. Go to magazine.atavis.com. Think about subscribing. 25 bucks gets you 12 incredible pieces, plus access to their archive. All this blockbuster journalism. No, I don't get any referral bonuses, so you know my recommendation is true. I just want to celebrate the amazing work, Sayward and Jonah, and the designers 
and the fact checkers and the fleet of writers do. Okay? Okay? Riff. Given that, you know, I, I, you know, you'll probably just chuff at this, but I, 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 I can, I consider you like a, a, in terms of your writing and your editing and your reporting, like a very like high level performer, if you. Oh will. well, thanks. I do like to be an A student when possible. Yeah, yeah, and and so as a result, there is, there are certain things that I imagine that if you were to listen to, you know, a podcast or watch a video with a writer you admire, there might be something like. You know, you're on a certain level. You you have a certain baseline fundamentals. Like, so when you're listening to, I don't know, fill in the blank of a writer you admire. What what are some things that you're hoping to glean insights from that makes you want to listen to something and you're like, oh, I want to hear them talk about this. I mean, I often find like when I'm listening to those kinds of interviews that I'm interested in specific stories so um you know and obviously this is what you do on the pod but like having people really drill down on like how they found a story how they reported a story I guess speaking less in generalizations and more in specifics just because to me I'm, I'm a person who really likes details and likes specifics so and even if I haven't read a story you know if I hear somebody talking about it I'm very likely to then go read it and like have in mind the things that they that they were saying but essentially like stories about stories, right? Is is what I'm what I'm looking for because every story has a story behind it in terms of like how it actually got made. So I think that's important. And then I I really do like listening to writers talk about their own flaws, failures, like self-doubt, you know, listening to people, everybody's human. Um, and when you hear people you admire talk about like overcoming obstacles or overcoming, you know, particular self-doubts or whatever it may be. I, I always find that to be really helpful um, as opposed to, I mean, I just, I don't like people put on a pedestal. You know what I mean? Like I, I like it yeah. when, um, when they feel more relatable, but also there are often lessons right in the, in the process of, you know, failing or having to start again or, you know, having to fix a problem. So so I think that that is really, really helpful. Um, like I know at the Power of Narrative conference that I spoke at in March at Boston University, Jennifer Senior was one of the keynotes and she's obviously amazing. Um, you know, one of the great magazine writers alive and working right now. You know, she talked about, so I, I can't remember precisely what the question was that her interlocutor asked, but it was something along the lines of, you know, when you turn something in, uh, you know, how, how many edits does it go through, right? And she, by way of example, talked about two pieces from the last couple of years that she's worked on and how one actually came together really, really quickly. And, you know, she turned in the draft and there was relatively little editing required. And she was like, that is something that almost never happens. You know, more often something goes through multiple drafts. And she was talking, I think, specifically about her Steve Bannon profile, you know, and just how many kind of tries it took to get it right um and with with an editor but then i think she also had some like other readers you know trusted writer types friends whatever and um and i think that you know when you really like admire someone you realize like listening to them talk about craft and how craft isn't just oh like you know this is how i hone my talent it's also you know this is how 
I treat this as a collaborative effort and get better by doing so. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but those are, those are my things. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Cause as much as I love the, the show to appeal to writers that might need a little juice and need a bit more experience, but I also like it to appeal to working professionals, people who have been doing this for a long time, who, who do know the basics and, you know, they're not going to glean a whole lot about, you know, how so-and-so might organize their research. You know, the, I love those questions, but they might, you, you, are, you already have a system most likely. And, but so, but to get more into the headspace of that, of that self-doubt and the self-talk and maybe the dialogue you're having between uh, a trusted friend, trusted reader, or a trusted editor to right. try to crack the code. You know, I, I just like, I, I like the, the, to try to appeal the show to, you know, people who are like you know, highly skilled and want this. And then some people at the other end who might be just, just learning their chops and trying to manifest, you know, their, their abilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, totally. I think, yeah, I think that makes, I think that makes a ton of sense. And, you know, for me, I think crack the code is a really smart way of thinking about it because every story has a code, right. You know, and sure. Like if you're a, a you know, beat reporter, I guess, um, and not necessarily an investigative one, you know, maybe you have kind of a formula for what you do, you know, if you're kind of cranking out stories minute after minute, day after day, but for the type of, you know, work we're talking about, there's no single formula that applies to any particular story and anybody who tells you otherwise is crazy. Um, so, yeah. um, you know, really getting into the headspace of like, and this is, I guess what I mean by story specifics too, is if you talk about a specific story and really, you know, how did you crack the code? Like not just in terms of, you know, the structure, the writing of it, but the reporting of it, the telling of it, like, you know, I don't know, any number of things can, I don't know, be inspiring. Even if, even if of course those steps might not apply specifically to a story that a listener is working on, like there's still a lot to glean there, not least being the fact that that there is a different, like just being reminded of the fact that there's a different code for every story. And, and some, and some stories have multiple codes. Like you can tell them different <laughs> ways, you know, obviously. So. Yeah. And, and speaking of, you know, u- unique challenges and, and cracking the code, I know with Anna and the reporting of this piece, which uh, uh, hinges on Greg, uh, Gary Settle, you know, mm-hmm. uh, an inmate at a, you know, at a prison in Butner and helping with compassionate um, release she was reporting in a sense in these little 10 minute chunks because she, he had to call her and all this. So you, you're talking about like a story specific uh, challenge to reporting. Like Anna had one right there baked in from the start. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, anybody who, you know, reports on the carceral state will tell you, you know, just like the, the obstacles can be just insane. Um, and that's by design, to be clear, you know, like the prison system makes it such that it can be as difficult as possible for people to communicate and tell their stories and whatnot. But, you know, I think what's really special about Anna's story is that it's the perfect example of like how an issue story, so something about, you know, an important thing going on in the world right now could be an atavist story. Um, because Gary, the the protagonist of, of this piece, um, is such a fascinating character, um, not least from, I mean, he has, you know, fr- from, you know, the crimes he was convicted of to this incredibly long sentence he got that surprised even the judge giving it <laughs> because of mandatory minimums to, you know, the detail in there about how he tried to escape prison with Woody Harrelson's father to, you know, what the meat of the story is, which is about how he has been 
a prolific, prolific helper for people seeking compassionate release, which notoriously is something that the Bureau of Prisons and uh, courts, because it's a complicated process invo- involving both. But, um, you know, notoriously, the Bureau of Prisons especially just does not let people get. Um, I mean, just a vanishingly small number, which weirdly, not weirdly, huh, um, not weirdly at all, given the way the Bureau <laughs> of Prisons works. But during the pandemic, like that percentage got even smaller. Uh, and so, you know, I think that when people pitch us these ideas, you know, that are very timely, very important, but oftentimes they don't have that kind of anchoring person or storyline that makes it work for the atavist. Um, and this was like a, I would, I would edit a story about compassionate release anywhere because I think it's such an important thing to highlight um, and to draw attention to. Uh, but in the atavist context, you know, Anna developing this rapport with Gary and Gary being so forthcoming um, and again, so prolific with, you know, the work that he's done. And then, you know, at a certain point, the story pivots just a little bit because you were watching him help all these people. And then it kind of turns to, can he help himself? And can the people who, you know, he's been helping help him back? And it's just a really moving, just a really moving narrative, I find. Yeah, and, and you're kind of alluding to it right now, uh, you know, in terms of a story that might, for lack of a better ad- adverb, like merely be an issues piece versus one that can uh, jump the chasm to uh, a, a narratively driven atavist piece. When you were, say, reading the picture, having a dialogue with Anna, what was the moment where you're like, okay, this does jump the chasm to what we can do? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think Anna, because Anna has written for the atavists before, um, she wrote a piece in 2019 um, about a art forger. Um, could not be more different, quite frankly, from a, from a thematic standpoint. Um, this guy who's like one of the most, keep using the word prolific, prolific art forgers um, in Europe of the last couple of decades. And so I think, you know, when she pitched, like she already knew what the, the kind of thing that we would be looking for. Um, and so, you know, more than anything, I knew that Anna was great to work with. I knew that she was talented and she had already she already knew that she wanted Gary to be the heart of her story. And so, you know, there was not, I would have to go back and, you know, look at my email precisely at the back and forth. But I remember thinking, you know, this seems like a really powerful story about something going on right now, but that has this, like, she's already identified who, who will drive the narrative, who and what will drive the narrative. So, uh, so I don't know that there was necessarily an aha moment <laughs> um, in the same way, just because Anna kind of already knew what we would be looking for. When I was talking with Jonah last, and it was uh, like a, it was with Tyler Hooper's uh, shipwreck piece. And I, I got to talking to him because uh, there was a uh, Bill Donahue's piece that involved the kayaking across the Bering Strait. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was, um, I'm blanking on her name, but her circumnavigating the globe in, the, in a sailboat. And, um, the main character and then Tyler's piece. I'm like, you know, you got a thing for shipwreck pieces and then, uh, or like uh, nautical pieces. And then here I'm like, I'm looking back to Maddie Kroll, you know, Kelly Loudenberg and now Anna's piece that deals with the carceral system in some capacity. And, uh, I wonder just, you know, for you as an editor and for you as a reader, you know, why those really resonate with, with you. Yeah. Well, it's, it's so interesting. You bring up shipwrecks and then stories about, you know, the American prison system, because in some ways they're like polar opposite ends of what we do, right? Because shipwrecks kind of have this obvious narrative to them. You know, there is a 
ship and it goes down or, or, you know, there is a boat, it is trying to cross something, you know, there's like the, the, the journey aspect is so naturally built in and spoiler, we have another nautical piece coming later this year. Um, and so, um, I mean, I find them incredibly appealing from any number of levels, um, not least because the ocean is just an endlessly, or any body of water, it's just like an endlessly fascinating, like the idea of people, you know, risking their lives, um, or, you know, finding themselves in situations where they have to fight for their lives, you know, against this like vast force that I don't think any of us can really fathom, um, in terms of, you know, uh, in Tyler's piece, the Pacific, right? And then what's interesting is like the, the, the carceral state stuff, you know, we get a lot of pitches um, and I think rightly so, because I think that, you know, the horror show that American prisons are, um, you know, is one of the most important stories of our time. And it is endlessly, I mean, there's a reason the Marshall Project exists, right? That the Marshall Project's entire project is to tell stories about a system that houses a really substantial percentage of Americans and, you know, other people. Um, and then on top of that, you know, is wildly unjust, is wildly um, uh, abusive. Um, and so, you know, when we get these pitches, you know, of course, we say no to more than we say yes to, often for the reasons I was just alluding to a minute ago, you know, it's more of an issue piece, it's more of a it's something that needs to run more quickly, maybe at shorter length, or you know, just doesn't quite have like the narrative heft we're looking for. But when those narrative pieces are there, like when those elements are there in a pitch, whether you're talking about, I mean, the the three examples you gave, you know, what unifies them are these really, really compelling personal stories at the heart of them. And, you know, some surprising elements, um, whether it's a relationship that develops or, you know, getting, um, getting some kind of reprieve or justice, you know, later than expected or not at all or any number of things um i mean i don't i don't know that there's anything more i mean i'm also a complete bleeding heart over here but you know i don't think there's necessarily anything more profound and you know stakes could not be higher in some ways than those stories um because it's life and death a lot of the time but it's also even if it's not life and death it's life you know and freedom versus you know, living a life in which you you have no freedom, honestly, um, and uh, and so the 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 stakes I don't know are just incredibly compelling, um, and I hate using that because they are literal and serious, and you know I never want to make light of it um, in any way, and so when I say compelling, I mean that certainly from a narrative standpoint, but also just from like a deeply um, I guess urgent is the word I would say over compelling, um, actually. Um, they they feel very, very urgent. So so yeah, I mean you can you can certainly talk about all kinds of buckets that Adamus stories fall into. You know, we then also have kind of our true crime, which I would not put these stories, you know, into a bucket of, you know, who did this, why did they do it, um, can we catch them, that kind of thing. Although I will say, like, I think in a lot of those stories that we run um, A Crime Beyond Belief by Katya Savchuk being one of them, um, you know, we try to be, you know, it's not like get, you know, catching the person if, you know, they have committed crimes uh, and, you know, putting them in prison. We don't see that as like a satisfying ending per se for the exact, you know, reasons I was just outlining about what the carceral state is like. Um, and so Katya's piece does such a lovely job of like, 
you know, showing, first of all, police failures in an investigative process, but then also, you know, what it means to be in a prison and to, in her, in that, in the case of that story, you know, somebody with pretty serious psychiatric issues and, you know, what the, the limits are of getting, you know, care, support, um, a reporter having access, all these different things. I was obsessed with the Titanic when I was a kid. I love a story about a shipwreck. I find them endlessly fascinating. Um, and, and so there's kind of that almost, I don't know, eternal part of me that is, you know, curious about those stories and just wants to eat them up. And then there's also the, I don't know, I'd like to say more mature part of me, um, the more um, sort of thoughtful part of me, um, the more political part of me that is really, really, you know, interested in, in stories about like one of the, one of the great like crises and, you know, I don't know, sort of human disasters of our time, which is, which is what, you know, the prison system has become. Absolutely. Well, yeah, we're going to turn it over to Anna because she's got a lot to say ab- about the story. And it's, it's so moving and uh, heartwarming, but also re- like really tragic at its heart, too. And it's uh, so it really it's a, it's a wonderful story, urgent story and just masterfully done by the pair of you. So just thanks for coming on. As always, say word. We're going to kick it over to Anna. Thank you so much. Sweet. Okay, next, we've got Anna Altman. She's a freelancer based out of Washington, D.C. She's written for The Atavist before in the past. So if you're a subscriber, go check out her archives there. And this piece is incredible. It's a it's an incredible feat of reporting and research, how she went about the reporting uh, when her central figure was behind bars. How do you do that? How do you report that out? And it's an incredible topic, and she has an incredible mule to carry the story, to borrow a term from Lawrence Wright. So let's get after it. Let's not waste any more time. Here's Anna. Lead us to this kind of long-form journalism. And, and for you, like, what was the appeal of it, and how did you arrive at wanting to do this kind of storytelling and this kind of, uh, this kind of journalism? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, the Atavist is really a dream in that way because um, they're really all about giving you the space to tell a story to its fullest. Um, You know, they're not trying to fit you on a page um, and you're not competing with any other long pieces in an issue. And um, yeah, but I guess what led me there, um, yeah, it's been a really circuitous route and I feel like I've had a bit of an unusual um, trajectory as a writer, but yeah. um, I started out mostly writing criticism. Um, you know, I realized that um, a lot of that was about sort of look, looking at how other people told stories, but I realized that I also wanted the opportunity to try my hand at that too. Um, and I think, yeah, sort of like what I said about the Atavist too, that having the opportunity to really dig deep on something is really a gratifying experience. Um, I mean, we'll get into this more too, but um, I've been working on this piece for almost two years now and, you know, I've gotten to know the people in it really well. Um, I've really spent a lot of time thinking about the issues that surround it and um, having the time to kind of think about those things and read about things and learn about what all the issues that surround a given story is more fun to me than writing sort of like a punchy short story. And so, yeah, so that's the thing that I like to do the most these days. Who were some of the writers that you admired that proved to be maybe models for the kind of journalism that you do and, and want to keep doing? 
you know, I wouldn't, <laughs> I'm always a little reluctant to say that they're models for what I want to do, because I think that also makes it sound as though I think I'm approaching what they might do. But, um, you know, two writers who I really, really admire um, for a number of reasons um, are Larissa McFarquhar and Rachel Aviv. Um, I think they both choose really interesting topics that have a lot of like meaty issues attached to them. They they keep their storytelling pretty tightly centered on sort of the the details of the individuals that they're looking at, but in doing so, they gesture at so many complicated philosophical questions, moral questions, intellectual questions. And so, yeah, whenever I see one of those people has published something, I'm always very eager to read it. Yeah, when you read work by them, are you ever are are you ever just struck by like fuck how do like how do they pull this off <laughs> definitely i mean i think you know the those two examples sort of um i feel that in different senses like when i read larissa mcfarquhar's book about um sort of about uh altruism and about um what we you know how we sort of think about how to help other people you know to sort of take on such a heady philosophical topic but in a mainstream journalism context is pretty hard to do. Um, and sort of her ability to toggle between finding these amazing stories of individuals who really illustrate some of these thorny questions. Um, and then also being able to kind of expound on the ideas there, um, I think is something that's pretty amazing. Um, I don't know a lot of people who can do that in that way. Yeah. With both McFarquhar and of you, I feel like I'm always really impressed at their ability to find, stories that are not so straightforward. I mean, it's people you might feel sympathetic towards, um, but they're not saints. And, um, you know, the questions that their stories raise are not straightforward ones. Um, and I think I've even heard both of them talk uh, about their work in that way that they that they don't want to choose a story where the answer is obvious um, or where the moral high ground is obvious. And so I think that's a really interesting piece of it, too. Yeah, for you, how do you generate story ideas and and lock in to some and you know keep either nourish them or let them die on the vine because there's just not enough there. Maybe there's not enough there. So, um, you know, to be honest, my practice of of finding story ideas is kind of getting a little bit more attenuated and a little bit slower and a little farther between. Um, I'm also in the process of finishing up my training to be a social worker, mm -hmm. um, and so um, you know I'm. I'm in school, I'm working in the community in a social work capacity. And so, um, you know, I'm thinking about a lot of other things too. But I think, you know, for me, I think always trying to find issues around sort of, you know, it's like all the, I hear so many things, especially in my work as a social worker, um, that has to do with social justice and the way that people navigate the world and the way that our society is inherently unfair and finding stories that um, allow you to sort of dig into that. But again, in a way that isn't always totally straightforward or obvious, it's hard. sometimes, you know, you get like a little, like, like my outrage um, meter starts to like sound a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not always the best story because if it's clear that something is outrageous and, um, awful, then, you know, then everyone's just going to sit there and agree with you. But, um, you know, what about the things where it's not really clear what the answer is or what we owe people, um, in certain situations. So, um, so that's one thing that I think about. Um, and then, you know, I think there's so much to learn as a journalist about the difference between 
a topic and a story. And, you know, sometimes I'm really interested in a topic, but I never really find the right story to um, be a vehicle for that. Um, Whether it's the right character or um, the right set of circumstances or someone who's willing to be forthcoming enough with what they've been through. Um, So a lot of times I have ideas about issues that interest me, but it takes me a very long time to find somebody um, who really illustrates that and helps me sort of tell that story in a meaningful and really detailed way. Yeah, that that whole um, calculus between topic and story is is so important. I think maybe where a lot of people looking to pitch maybe a longer story might go wrong because they feel like they might have something that is a good topic, but it's just like, well, where's the where's the animating force? You know, what are the story blocks? How is this? How can this be spun into a narrative? And I think that's a great way to maybe dovetail into your Atavis piece because, you know, a, a topic on its surface was, you know, compassionate release. But ultimately, you know, you did have something of a much juicier story here. So at what point did you realize you had a story and not just a topic as you started to sink your teeth into this one? Yeah. So, you know, I actually started out reporting on compassionate release with a different idea in mind. Um, I was interested, I had read a couple of things about people who had been granted compassionate release, but were not able to leave prison because they didn't have a place to go. Um, And so, you know, a lot of people who have been in prison, they have attenuated relationships with their family members. Um, They obviously don't have health care. They don't usually have means. And so even if they can leave, if they're sick enough to be able to leave prison, that usually means that they also need you know, a nursing home level of care or a dedicated caregiver. And a lot of these people can't find that. And I heard about a couple of nursing homes that were basically opened um, with the express purpose of housing folks who were eligible for compassionate release, but didn't have a place to go and basically like would help them get set up with Medicaid. And then they could sort of charge Medicaid and keep these people safe. But there's a lot of stigma around um, having your grandmother, you know, in a nursing home next to somebody who, you know, was just let out of prison. So there's been a lot of fights um, over those places. And, you know, whether or not they're sustainable, it was a question. So I was interested in this question. And I got in touch with a woman who at the time was a, a lawyer at this organization called FAM. And she had been instrumental in setting up what was called the Compassionate Release Clearinghouse. So this FAM is basically a prisoner advocacy organization. Originally, it was um, set up as families against mandatory minimums, but they've expanded their their sort of purview since then. And um, so I was talking to her about her work setting up the, this clearinghouse and, you know, did she have examples of people who didn't make, you know, who weren't able to make it home because of, you know, these issues that I just described. And she she did, and we had a really interesting conversation. At the end, she said, you know, my one of my colleagues wrote this article um, for the American Bar Association Journal would, you know, about, about our work and I'll send it to you. And so I read it. And at the end of the article, there's sort of is like a little coda and it mentions the fact that there was a man who was in federal prison. Um, they did not reveal his identity, but they said that he had been instrumental in um, sort of helping them establish this work. He would find people inside the federal medical center where he lived um, and direct them to FAM. Um, so that they could um, exercise their right to go home when they're when they were nearing the end of their life. And I said, well, who's that guy? Um, and what's his story? And so they asked him if he was willing or interested to talk to me, and he was. And so all of which is to say, you know, I was sort of pursuing something different, and I learned about 
a really interesting individual who had a very long story and was willing to tell me about it. And, um, you know, that ended up being much more interesting and um, propulsive than the other idea that I had had. The idea of compassionate release to me, in some ways, seems like a no brainer. I mean, maybe that's a, a reveals a lot about me and my my politics or where I, um, what I think about the carceral system and things like that. But um, the idea that someone who wasn't sentenced to a life sentence um, dying in prison um, without the opportunity to say goodbye to their loved ones um, or to, you know, die in comfort or in peace um, seems like a bridge farther than than what most people expect when they think that someone should go to prison. Um, You know, not to mention the fact that, you know, with compassionate release, There's also a financial calculus, you know, people who stay in prison when they're very, very ill, it costs us a ton of money to keep them there. And what good is it really doing? So, yeah, that was just a a topic that interested me. It was like, as a society, why are we um, committed to keeping people uh, locked away when they, you know, can't get out of bed, when they can't take care of themselves anymore, when they're really not a threat anymore? Um, And, you know, one of the sources in my piece says at one point, like, if we were ever doing any good locking them up. I think it's pretty clear that we're not doing any good with that at the end of life. So yeah, that was what I was interested in. Um, As a social worker, I've worked with people at the end of their lives. And um, so that's a topic that interests me too. And um, anyway, so all these things kind of came together to get me interested in this topic. And then I found out about Gary. Exactly. Yeah. And and to kind of quote uh, the great New Yorker writer, uh, Lawrence Wright, you know, he always said like a story needs a mule, a mule being just someone who can carry the story. And uh, even though it might sound a little insulting on the surface, but it's just someone who carries everything. <laughs> and so, yeah. so Gary is, he's your mule in this story and a, and, and a, a compassionate. And even like, as, as we learn something of a, of a tragic figure too, as his story unfolds. So what was it about him uh, when you started interviewing him and talking to him where you realized like he was just such a good vector to tell the story? Yeah, well, from the get-go, I mean, the way that he was described in this um, ABA, in this um, American Bar Association article, is that, you know, this organization reached out to, they have a um, a mailing list of 40,000 people who live in federal prison, and um, they shared information about a new law that had been passed, and, um, you know, a lot of people realized that this could benefit them, um, that they had a prognosis um, related to an illness that they had that allowed them to potentially seek Um, early release. And a lot of people wrote to them to say, you know, you know, can you help me too? And um, the only person who wrote to them not about himself was Gary. And to me, that seemed pretty remarkable. And so I wondered, you know, well, like, who is this kind of person who is motivated to do that? Um, He must have a certain amount of confidence, he must have a certain um, desire to help others. He must have a certain motivation. And so I was really curious about all of those things. Um, it was only sort of a little bit later that I learned about his past. And like you said, I think he is somewhat of a tragic figure, you know, not the only person with a tragic story who's in federal prisoner, but in federal prison rather, but certainly someone with a story, um, with tragic proportions. And yeah, I mean, talking to him, he was, he's, He's very enthusi- very enthusiastic interlocutor, let's say. He wants mm-hmm. to talk to you. He wants to tell you a story. He is very curious. Um, he's, you know, he thinks deeply about a lot of things. And all of those things were very, all of those things were really apparent from our very first phone call. Um, 
he has a great sense of humor. He has interesting turns of phrase. The way he expresses himself is very um, specific to him. And um, all of those things made me think, wow, this is a person who's really interesting and has a lot to offer. And yeah, I thought, you know, this is also someone. So at the time that I started talking to Gary, I'm just trying to do the math. I think he'd been in prison about 27 years. You know, this is someone who doesn't have a lot of access to the outside world. And, you know, to sort of be in that position of privilege to hear his story felt really uh, meaningful. And I was I was game to talk with him and, and learn more about him. And, you know, since then, it's been um, so I started talking to him in July 2021. It's now May 2023. And, you know, we talk several times a week. Um, And through him, I've learned a lot, not only about his life, but about his life there, about what it means to be in touch with someone who's in federal prison and what, you know, kind of access you have to them or not at different times. And that was new for me as a journalist. I haven't really um, reported on um, the prison system or spoken with or been in in prisons. Um, And he liked to tease me about that. And that was funny, too. You know, he... um, he talked about my, some of my naivete or my, you know, that I was kind of a newbie to this. I don't have family members who are incarcerated um, and or loved ones. And so it was all new. And um, he was a bit my guide. Um, and I think he enjoyed playing that role in some way as well. Now, it's I understand that the phone conversations you would have with Gary just by the nature of the prison system and and communicating through those channels that you you only have like upwards of what, maybe 10 minutes to talk. Is that right? Yeah. So the way it works is um, federal prisoners can call you. You can't call them. Things were a little bit different um, until very recently because of the pandemic. Um, So usually phone calls cost money and the prisoner has to pay for that. And yes, there's a time limit because there's only a certain number of phones and, you know, everyone has to use them. Um, and so um, at the time that we started talking, he was he was incarcerated at the Federal Medical Center um, in North Carolina. It um, called it's at a complex called Butner. Um, and when you're at that location, you get 10 minutes at a time. So, you know, I would get a phone call from a 202 number, which is actually a um, D.C. area code, um, but it's always the same number. It's sort of like the outgoing Bureau of Prisons phone number, um, I would have to accept the call. And then we would get 10 minutes with um, sort of series of interruptions throughout reminding me that this is a call from a federal prison. And then at 10 minutes on the dot, it would cut off. Um, And so we developed a system where basically I would send him my schedule that week and say, you know, I'll be available between noon and five on Monday and nine and two on Tuesday or whatever. And he would just try to call me as many times as he could. Now that the COVID emergency is over, um, so I, I think I maybe I missed this part, but um, during COVID, those calls were free. Um, and now mm-hmm. that the COVID emergency is over, there is a charge again. Um, he also was transferred from what is called the Federal Medical Center at Butner to one of the medium security prisons in that complex. And actually, the time limit's a little longer there. So um, we've been able to talk for 15 minutes at, the to- at a time. But yeah, I can't call him um, when there are lockdowns. He can't call me. Um, we also communicated extensively through email. There's a specific prison email system for federal prisoners. And there's a long delay for how messages go through. Everything is read by someone in the Bureau of Prisons. So, you know, I often wouldn't get emails for several days. And then all of a sudden, I would get six, and they would be all out of order. And Hmm. Um, so yeah, we kind of developed various systems to make sure that we knew which email was responding to which question and, um, kind of keeping track of things, but it was challenging. And that was also really challenging in the fact checking process too. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, I didn't even think about that part of it. Uh, when you would, um, so with these calls, say like in ten minute chunks, could if no one was waiting in line, could he then call you right back and have another ten minutes, or was it like you got one a day? He, he almost never was able to call me back right away. Um, you know, some days we would speak as many as three times, mm-hmm. um, but it would often be with breaks in between. Um, so either maybe someone was waiting for a phone or it was mealtime or it was his chance to get outside and get some exercise or whatever it was. I don't actually have a clear sense of exactly what the course of the day was in that sense. But yeah, usually it'd be like, let's say I would get a call at 10 AM. I would get another one at 1 PM and I would get another at four. Um, and I think the most we ever spoke in a day was probably three times. Yeah. And something I always love asking, you know, on the show and specifically with the writers about, uh, who, who do the, who, who write the Atavis stories there's interviewing for information and like interviewing for scene. And I, for you, how did you, you know, how do you typically go about that? You know, fleshing out those kind of details, but also given that you had such very short windows to talk and talking about scene can be so expansive. You know, how did you accomplish that for this? That's a great question. It was really challenging. And actually so much of this piece was done via desk reporting, um, both phone calls and um, reading documents and um, things like that, that creating scenes in the story was really, really challenging. You know, so much of it also was one-sided in the sense that, um, you know, Gary was my main source about the conversations um, and situations he was in with various people that he had helped. Um, Most of the people that he has helped at this point have passed away. Um, Some of them have surviving family members, but I think um, Gary has always felt that once folks he has helped leave. He's a little bit, he likes to kind of leave the ball in their court, how much the family or the individual stays in touch with him. He doesn't really want to bother them. And so I did get the opportunity to speak to some people that he uh, had helped um, or their family members, but it was hard. It was hard to kind of get the scene from multiple angles. Um, So a lot of it relied on Gary. Um, I also spoke extensively to his mother and she was able to tell me, you know, some things about the earlier years of Gary's life before he went to prison. But yeah, it was a big challenge. I mean, in terms of how I usually try to do it, I mean, I usually try to see things in my own eyes or go somewhere, you know, have other sources to kind of fill things out. But it was really all about Gary telling me about these things. And I guess I would say that it wasn't always so easy to get sort of like the scene from Gary. I mean, he was sort of more interested in telling me the facts, you know, or sort of his own thought process about something or, you know, how he felt about something. Um, but it's something that I, it was a big challenge here. And I'm not sure, you know, I, I, I wonder how someone else would have approached it and if they would have been more successful at creating that sense of scene in addition to, um, you know, just just the facts, I guess, in a certain way. Yeah, and I get a, get a sense, too, that this this piece is largely about uh, regret and how, you know, Gary specifically tries to atone for that regret, be it the pain he put his own family through and everything. And here he is, he's trying to at least make some, make some things better through ca- compassionate release and advocating for the terminally ill people in the prisons. Is is that something of a, of a theme that bubbled up for you through the reporting of this uh, when you were you know, reporting it and writing it? Definitely. I'm so glad you asked about that. I mean, one of the things that I thought about, you know, there's a, there's a palliative care doctor who I've read some work of. His name is Ira Bayok. Um, and he's written a book that's sort of, it's called, I think it's called The Four Things That Matter Most. Um, and he talks about how people at the end of their life, like the things that are most meaningful to talk about or to say or to have the opportunity to say 
are, please forgive me, I forgive you, thank you, and I love you. And so I thought about that a lot when I was writing this piece because the ability to sort of express those things or have the time or space to explore that with the one people that matter most is so um, blocked. If you're, if you're experiencing the end of your life in prison, Um, you sort of lose the ability to say those things, which can be so meaningful. And I think that Gary is an interesting case because I think he, um, you know, we haven't talked about this part yet, but you know, he's terminally ill at the time that I met him, he was, um, he had cancer, but he wasn't terminal. Um, and he is thinking about the end of his life and what um, what that means and what you know he'll get to experience with the people that he loves. And I think um, you're right that a lot of what he is contending with is how does he forgive himself? Um, it's different than saying, please forgive me or I forgive you. Um, but he feels that he made a series of tremendous errors as a young man that he is paying for. And while he may have some, you know, resentment or anger about the the parameters of that situation, you know, part of it too is about having hurt his loved ones and the and the pain that he put them through by doing these things and then and you know spending the next thirty years in prison. And so yeah, we talked about that a lot. Um, and um, it's something that he's still grappling with. And I, well, from what I understand from him, you know, the people who are closest to him implore him to forgive himself to you know to accept that the people who care for him have forgiven him in a certain way at least the ones who are in a position to express that but he's not able to do that for himself yet and that was a really big threat in the story um you know i think the degree to which that motivated him to do the work that he did of connecting his fellow inmates with fam and with lawyers. You know, I don't have like a precise answer for that, but I think he does want to to show that, you know, I think he said to me at one point, you know, when like the last line is written about me, I don't want it to be that I was a bank robber. Um, You know, he wants to be more than that. And I think he certainly has shown himself to be more than that. Um, And unfortunately, you know, the judicial system has not recognized that or does not honor that in the way that perhaps individuals do. What struck me about the piece as well was how some of the people that Gary was able to advocate and have them released back into the, so they could live out their final days with their families. Some of them had like pretty much like far more quote unquote, you know, serious convictions than Gary, you know, Gary who robbed banks, you know, armed, armed robbery was, no one was ever hurt. I mean, we all agree that it's, you know, it's not an enviable crime. (laughs) Uh, No crime is enviable, but it's, it's not, it wasn't like as severe as some other ones. And yet he was constantly, he was constantly denied his compassionate release. So that's, I imagine that that's just uh, probably maddening for you, just knowing, knowing the system and, 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 and for him, and it's just that's what makes it all the more tragic when you think about it. It's just like he's not going to get the benefit from it, even though his pun, even though his crimes weren't quite as severe as some of the people he's helped. Yeah, that's really true. And I think, you know, when I talk to different lawyers and different ex- experts about compassionate release um, and about the First Step Act, one of the things that the First Step Act was trying to do. So this was the law that was passed by Congress in 2018. Um, which had all sorts of criminal justice reforms in it. But one of them was that rather than only being able to seek um, relief from the Bureau of Prisons, that people who are terminally ill or, um, you know, have of advanced age could ask the judge that, or the, the person who is in the seat of the judge that originally sentenced them 
to let them go home. They could ask them directly. And that was a big change. And the idea, one of the lawyers actually who ended up representing Gary for, for one of his compassionate release motions said to me, you know, the idea was that this allowed judges to reconsider people and sort of um, have the opportunity to see the trajectory of what had happened to them. That doesn't happen a lot in the federal prison system. There's no parole. Um, and so, um, you know, how have they changed? And, you know, are, are they still a threat to society? Should we make a different judgment call now? But the problem is it really depends on the individual that sits in on the bench in your particular, you know, jurisdiction or district. Um, you know, there's been research. This um, We talk about this some in the piece, but there's been some research that, you know, federal judges who were appointed by Democratic presidents are more likely to do this. Um, we saw in during COVID. So, you know, this story spans the period of COVID when there was really an explosion of compassionate releases because um, many judges saw this as a, quote, extraordinary and compelling reason, um, the pandemic and the threat that it posed to people who were ill, um, that it was an extraordinary and compelling reason to let people go home early, even if they weren't terminally ill. We saw that, you know, when, when there's sort of has been a postmortem about who was let go and for what reasons that in states that tend to vote blue, um, that that happened in greater, greater numbers. And that was another aspect of what was really frustrating in Gary's case. Um, you know, he went before a judge that it's not entirely clear how many compassionate release cases he has approved, um, because, um, there's not great record keeping about this. Um, but anecdotally his, um, lawyers, the federal defenders who, um, who brought the motion for him said that they they only knew of one case that he had ever let somebody go, and you know you you can't switch jurisdictions, you can't ask for a different judge to weigh in, and um, you sort of get what you get in that sense. Um, and so yeah, I think that there was a feeling. You know, I think Gary tries really hard not to be bitter or to begrudge anybody else. Um, the better luck that they might have. But he did comment repeatedly on, um, you know, folks who got to go home in New York or got to go home in another state um, where uh, judges might be more amenable to this kind of relief than um, the judge in Florida that he was going before. And as you started to sit down to, to write this piece, you know, when, when you're tackling a piece of this nature, which is ambitious and long, there's the matter of structure and pacing and, and all, all those things that are can sometimes gum up the works and get in the way of the actual writing. Um, very important things, but sometimes if you overthink it, and I'm trust me, I'm an overthinker when it comes to this kind of thing, it can be kind of hard to start getting the ball rolling. So for you, as you started to sit down to write, what, what did you want in place, be it structurally or uh, just, uh, just how did you go about starting just just to start, because it is, you know, it's, it's a big sweeping piece. Yeah, well, I think one of the things that was really, you sort of already, so there were two things that were really challenging in the writing um, that I'll point out. One was that at the time that I started writing, we still didn't really know the end of the story. Um, so I was writing when Gary's lawyers were still in the process of putting together his compassionate release motion, showing that he was terminally ill um, to ask for his opportunity to go home. And that went on for a really long time. And so I was trying to write without really knowing where things ended. So that was one challenge. Another one was that, as you sort of already asked about, there's not a lot of scenes here. And so it's kind of hard, you know, I, I don't, I was not able to be present for or get like a full sense of, you know, specific moments to sort of 
paint a picture that allows a reader to sort of really be drawn in from the get-go. And so thinking about how to create those moments was also really challenging. And I did end up sort of relying a little bit more on some of the other folks other than Gary, who could also fill that picture out. And so I ended up starting the piece actually from their perspective. Um, and, you know, to kind of create a little bit of suspense too, like, like I sort of said earlier, Gary was one of hundreds of people who reached out to FAM asking for help from a lawyer um, for someone who wanted, um, who was ill, who was terminally ill and had, you know, might have the opportunity to go home. But he was the only one who wrote on someone else's behalf. But when he first wrote to these lawyers, they had no idea who he was. They didn't know if he was reliable. They didn't know if he was telling the truth. They didn't know why he was doing this and what his motivations were. And sort of that whole sense of like, well, you know, we sort of have to take this on faith that that this person is reaching out for good reasons. But, you know, I think they also felt like they had to be really careful and sort of having that sense of this rush of um, of requests from people and the urgency of that. I think the lawyers I spoke to felt great urgency to help these people get out. In a lot of cases, time was short because their prognosis was short. But to have this sort of mystery person kind of peek his head out and say, like, hi, I'm here on someone else's behalf. I mean, that was... Um, a really similar moment. So I knew, I knew at a certain point that I kind of wanted to start there. So I think that it sort of led from there, you know, I think from there, then it was, okay, well, who is he? And how do we know what we know about him? And Gary shared with me what he <laughs> drafted, what he calls his life story that he wrote. Hmm. Um, and so a lot of that came from him. You know, he, he talked a lot about his childhood, about his upbringing, about sort of what he remembers about what led him to take this great risk to rob these banks and, you know, why he sort of didn't fully compute the severity of the consequences of that. So, you know, that seemed like the next piece. And then from there, it was really about the relationships that he built with the people in prison that allowed him to help them and, and with the lawyers who helped, who were, who he was able to sort of connect folks with. And um, I think that was actually one of the things that was really poignant for me about reporting the piece was, yeah, he's really made meaningful friendships with these lawyers. Um, you know, I know that at least one of them goes off, you know, not maybe not often, but she goes a couple times a year to visit him. They speak on the phone regularly as friends at this point. And that was an interesting part of the story that I wanted to make sure was there too. And I think I think I was hoping that that would also give it a little more dimension that this wasn't just Gary telling his story, but somebody else um, who could offer a perspective to give it a little bit more dimension. When you're, when you're writing, you know, longer things, sometimes the, the scope of it can feel a bit overwhelming at, at the start. And uh, it can be important to have uh, baking in small victories, whatever, however you might define that, you know, for you, as you were embarking on the writing of this and trying to get that momentum, what did a small victory or even a big victory look like for you as you were drafting this? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I feel like I do try to block out where I'm headed. I mean, like I said, I didn't know exactly where I was headed because at the time that I was doing the bulk of the writing, I didn't know yet if Gary was going to get to go home or not. But yeah, sort of like sections. I try to just break it down into sections um, so that it's like, you know, when you get to the end of a thousand or 1500 words, or I don't know, it could be even shorter than that or something that that feels like, okay, you like, you know, have made it to the next um drop cap and that that, that feels important <laughs> you know a, a friend of mine uh shared let's see let me find it because i saved it on twitter um she all right there's someone had posted this thing because I, I was talking to her about just the this thing I, i'm writing and how it is very overwhelming and she, she and uh she shared this passage uh from let's see 
I think it's something that Matt Bell wrote, and it says, in an interview in the Writer's Chronicle, the writer uh, Patricia Henley once explained how fellow novelist Charlie Smith suggested that one way to draft a story is to first write the islands, by which he meant the writer should draft the parts he or she already knows, those pivotal scenes that can be seen even before the intervening connective tissue has been imagined. And I really like that because there are some moments where you feel real strong about it. You're like, I got this. I reported the hell out of this. But it's like, I don't know, structurally, it's three quarters of the way through. I, I, can't, I can't get there yet. But maybe you can. You just write that island. And then you worry about writing to it at some point or another. So it becomes a little modular. Is that something that works works for you? Yeah, I would say I do sort of something that mimics that in some ways, but is a little different. Like I think for me, so much of it has to do with like quotes or specific moments that I know I want to get to. Um, And so a lot of my outlining has to do with sort of figuring out where those moments are going to come. And so what I end up with early on is sort of a draft or not a draft, an outline. I don't know, like some hodgepodge of kind of quotes and moments um, where it helps me block out the piece. And so I wouldn't say that I necessarily end up writing, let's say, like the moment that's three quarters of the piece before something else. But I do sort of know that that's somewhere where I want to get to. And so it's like, well, how do I get from A to B to C to D? Um, And so, you know, I basically have a document where it's like, you know, some some chicken scratch of quotes and other things that sort of show me that like at some point we're going to hear this from Gary or from his mother or something like that. Um, and that that's a pivotal moment. And that is how I think about how to structure something. And that does motivate me to ha- figure out how to, how to get from A to B basically. And in terms of uh, decisions that come across in the writing process and drafting about three quarters of the way through the piece is where you actually come into the story. Uh, as as a, as a an eye forward narrator, uh, whereas before you were you know far more omniscient. So uh, what was the just the decision making, the thinking there of okay, this is when I'm gonna kind of step in here for a bit. As I was describing, I think the experience of of being of reporting a story that happens in federal prison where you have so little access to it was an important part of the experience for me. And I think being able to transmit that a bit to the reader at a certain point felt important. I didn't feel like something I needed to lead with, but it, see, it felt like something that needed to be addressed, you know, to sort of build rapport and trust with someone who you talk to in 10 minute increments. And, you know, at least for the, for the majority of the time that Gary and I know each other, we'd never met in person, you know, to be able to sort of gesture at that was important, but I didn't think it needed to happen right away. Also sort of at the point at which I sort of talk about myself um, in relation to the story was the point at which, um, you know, I had spent a long time talking to Gary at that point. I was deep in my research and my reporting and even in the writing, um, but we were sort of in this funny um phase, which was very challenging for Gary, um, where, you know, he had been told he was terminal. He knew he was going to apply again for compassionate release, but it was taking a very long time. And he he was very anxious. You know, he was in treatment and intensive treatment for his cancer. He was physically very unwell. And um, he was trying to kind of just get through and wait and see what happened. The tenor of our conversations really changed during that time. And Um, I wanted to sort of be able to express that too, that, you know, for someone who 
is very ill, um, who's very physically uncomfortable, who's spiritually drained, um, who has almost no control over anything in his life at that time. Um, it really changed the way our conversations went. And um, so it felt like at that point, it was important to sort of talk about, yeah, what those conversations felt and sounded like that he was, he talked about how anxious he was, he talked about how, um, how hard it was to sleep. He talked about how he didn't really want to talk to a lot of people because he wanted to be able to wait to contact friends and loved ones until he had good news. You know, he tried very hard to be patient with um, sort of the judicial process, but he wanted things to move much more quickly. And he felt like he had sort of relinquished control over that to his lawyers. And while he thought that was probably in his best interest, it was very challenging for him. And um, that was a real deepening of our relationship. And so, yeah, to answer your question more directly, that was the point at which I felt like our relationship was a bigger part of the story than it had been in sort of earlier uh, parts of the story. And as you were, say, closing down your early early drafts uh, of this piece, and then you're, now you're starting to have uh, more of a back and forth and a dialogue with Sayward, who's just a, such a sharp, intuitive editor and just really brilliant with how she you know, brings herself to the to the, to the dugout to, to coach your way through a piece. What were the, the dialogue like uh, between the pair of you as you were looking to you know, bring the best possible version of the story to light? Yeah, I mean, so this is the second time I've worked with Sayward. And so um, at least on my end, I felt like I really trusted her. I knew that she, like you said, that she um, is a real pro. And um, even if some of her cuts were brutal, that they were probably right. So that was, um, <laughs> you know, I knew that I knew that that was, that I, I sort of was going to entrust her with, um, with this. Is that a gut um, punch? <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I think when you spend so long thinking about a piece like this and there are also so many parts of it or sort of like tentacles that can come off of it. I'm someone who can kind of get lost in some of that. Like, you know, what does happen to people who are in the carceral system at the end of life? Like what's the difference between their care and someone who's on the outside? Um, you know, so many rabbit holes about what happened with compassionate release during COVID, which was like its own story. And she was very, very clear about, uh, you know, what was serving this particular story and what was ancillary. And that was really helpful. I mean, obviously, I handed in something that was much longer, that was much bulkier, that needed some precision to it. And she was, you know, I trusted her to do that. Yeah, like I still wonder about some of those details or like, you know, if they have a place in another story or um, if there's more for me in sort of thinking about, um, you know, compassionate release or end of life issues in prison and things like that. But um, I think that she was able to sort of separate the wheat from the chaff, at least in the case of this particular story of Gary's story um, and of the story of like how compassionate release has changed over the last five years. So, so yeah, she was great. She did a great job. Yeah, writers in tend to have some things that they they struggle with all, all the time, and I mine is a laundry list of things that'll. Uh, in the spirit of brevity, I will I will I will spare the listeners and certainly spare you out of compassion. <laughs> uh, but for for you, what is you know what is something that you you kind of struggle with in some of the writerly baggage you bring to the page that you have to overcome. Yeah, definitely concision. <laughs> I think that, you know, I, I tend to, I, I, you know, I tend to maybe say something two or three times in a paragraph where once we'll do the trick. Um, and I think sometimes that Sayward also was very good at that and not called me out on that. You know, it's like the quote already said that you don't need an extra line about it. So that's definitely one thing. 
Yeah, I think like what I was just describing to this desire to bring in a lot of threads that maybe um, make things more complex or harder for the reader to follow, even if they might bring, you know, extra dimensions into it. Sometimes it's just not not the place for it. That's definitely something that I struggle with. And, you know, I'm someone who really loves a lot of detail about people's lives and the things that they say and their quotes. And I love sort of hearing things from people's own mouths. And sometimes you just need to be a little bit more straightforward and, you know, just um, say what you mean rather than sort of fit in all those details. Um, those details obviously bring a lot too, but there's a time and a place and, um, that's another struggle I have. Yeah. And, uh, when it comes to, you know, the research and the interviews and the organizing of it, uh, how do you keep that information sort of corralled and easily accessible? So as you're writing, you're, you're like, okay, I know where to find this information. And more importantly, I know how to find it. So the fact checker can find it. (laughs) Yeah, it was really challenging here. You know, a bulk of the reporting and of the information that I have existed in emails between Gary and I through this antiquated um, Federal Bureau of Prisons email system. So, you know, I have a folder, you know, and the emails automatically delete after a certain period of time. So I have this folder of PDFs of all of our correspondence. And, you know, being able to find things there plus in our conversations. So, you know, then I have this trove of, you know, dozens of hours of conversations that I've had with Gary and sort of trying to remember, well, did he tell me that on the phone or was that an email? I mean, it was really challenging. But my main tool, which I recommend to every writer, is to use Scrivener. Um, I dump everything into Scrivener. Every article that I write, every note that I take, it's all in there. And so it's all searchable. And so then if I'm having trouble finding something, at least, you know, I have that to fall back on. It doesn't mean it's always fast, but it means it's there and it's all in one place. Yeah, I try to be really diligent about sort of like footnoting or keeping track of my sources for each thing that I write as I'm going so that later on I don't have to um, go back and look for it. Of course, this experience with fact checking showed me that that did not meet those expectations. I needed to, I did need to go back and find a lot of things, but yeah, those are my, you know, I think just being able to have, keep good track of things, have a good sense of where things came from as you note them down. And as you were writing, um, I mean, I think anyone who has waited to the end to put those things in knows how painful that is. So I've learned to do it as I go. Yeah. It's kind of the site as you write, even though it, it, I'm, learning that too. And, and what I'm working on and it's like, it feels kind of herky jerky to like maybe write a sentence or two and then, all right, just footnote it right now. Just do it right now. Cause I exactly. can't imagine what a, what a nightmare that'll be. Be like, Oh shit. Like you're kind of writing from memory like, Oh, I'll remember this later. And you're like, damn it. I didn't find that. I can't find what I thought Did I, so I, did I just make that up now? Now I got to delete it because I can't actually verify it. Yeah. And I think the other thing that also is, was challenging was, yeah, transcription. So like I use um, Otter as like my main transcription vehicle, I guess, um, or service. And, but, you know, of course you need to spend the time to go back and make sure that it did things accurately. And when you're processing so much tape, that can be extremely time consuming. And I did not always do that. And so it meant that finding things in the transcripts um, during fact checking was hard. Um, And, you know, if I, if I did it again, I think I might come up with a better system, um, or sort of, you know, maybe, I don't know, make notes of like the salient points of each conversation and sort of keep, so that I have like some other record that isn't reliant on like an AI transcription service to make sure that I can find a keyword. Yeah. The, I use Otter too. And, um, uh, you know, transcript transcribing for me these days is going through and cleaning them up and they're usually like, I don't know, 
75% accurate. And I thought it would be like way, way faster than doing it manually. And yeah, manually is its own bear. And I'm glad I don't do that. But it still takes a long time to comb through and clean it up and make sure everything is accurate. It's uh, surprisingly long. If you do it at like 1x speed, sometimes you can do it a little faster. But by and large, it's like you really got to pay attention to every single word going by because it, it, it is a... Uh, it does take a surprisingly amount of time to clean up those transcripts. Absolutely. I felt the same way. And this was the first time that I'd really done it exactly in this way. And um, I expected to be able to sort of like keyword search without having done a lot of the cleaning up. And um, yeah, it made it made it hard. So I think dedicating the time to a little cleanup is probably a good thing to budget in. Yeah. Well, very nice. Well, Anna, I want to be mindful of your time. And uh, as I always bring these conversations down for landing, I love asking the guest for a recommendation of some kind for the listeners. And it can just be anything you're excited about a TV show or brand of coffee or a certain, uh, uh, walk outside. It really doesn't matter. So I'd extend that to you. What would you recommend for the listeners out there? Yeah. Well, I guess my suggestion or my recommendation would be a little bit nerdier, but, um, one writer who I didn't really talk about just cause I feel like I, I don't know her like full body of work as much, but someone who I really admire is Katie Englehart. Um, and I read her book, the inevitable, um, sort of early in my time reporting this. Um, and I thought about it a lot and I really recommend it to readers. So, um, the inevitable is a book that she wrote. Um, it's sort of, uh, five or six case studies about, um, people who, are ill and would like to, um, you know, have physician assisted suicide, but they are not legally eligible for it in the places that they live, or in some cases they are, but are not able to access it. And it's an amazing feat of reporting. Um, you know, she, it's a really thorny set of ethical questions in each of these stories. I mean, her eye for detail is amazing. Um, and so I would really recommend it, um, to your listeners. I also think it's sort of helps us all think about a little bit about like, you know, what, what do we want at the end of our lives and, you know, how much, um, self-determination do we have in that regard? So, um, those were some things that I was thinking about and, um, maybe a slightly less nerdy example. I'm reading a great novel right now that I really like. It's by a Hungarian novelist named Magda Sabo. I think I'm pronouncing her name right. Um, and it's called Isa's Ballad. Um, and just on the sentence level, I think the writing is amazing. Um, and it's sort of, yeah, I just think it's, it's, it's an excellent novel. Um, so yeah, those are two things that I've been enjoying recently that I wanted to share with folks. Fantastic. Well, Anna, thank you so much for the work that you, that you brought to, uh, be celebrated on the show and that for coming and talking so forthrightly about how you went about it and the reporting and the subject matter itself. So just thanks for the work and thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Um, and yeah, and I look forward to listening to more of your episodes. You have a great show. All right. Hey, CNFers, thanks for listening. Thanks to Sayward and Anna for jamming in the CNF pod garage band. Head over to brendanmeyer.com hey, for show notes and consider signing up for the Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter. It's on Substack now. Book recommendations. Short essay, writing inspiration, one hopes, and series of links that go up to 11. First of the month, no spam. So far as I can tell, you can't beat it. So writing and research can exist on a sliding scale. They have to, really, or at least in my case, they have to. The slider is starting to move towards the writing direction ever so slightly. I'm like 800 words in, baby. 
at minimum, according to my legally binding agreement with HarperCollins, I need to somehow find 84,200 more words. I've interviewed a little more than 30 people, maybe about two dozen. Meanwhile, a uh, three dozen, three dozen, that's three, 36. Meanwhile, a couple weeks ago, Jeff Perlman, former guest of the show, says on Twitter, just interviewed my 300th person. And I'm like, how? How? I'll be lucky, lucky to get to 150, even 100 at this pace and at my current deadline. Sure, it's not about quantity, but sometimes it is about quantity. I made 25 calls last week, spoke with four, with one scheduled for this week, so let's just count it. Five for 25. You get your ass sent down to the minors for that batting average. The week before, made 37 calls, spoke with six. That's even worse. I'm going to fail. My wife doesn't want me to touch my book advance at all because she's not 100% sure I'm going to deliver this manuscript. So when I fail, we'll just have to pay back the advance and then save up for divorce lawyers. She's going to take me to the cleaners, man. Not that I have much. She'll get the car the house, the dogs, and I'll have my wounded, shriveled raisin of an ego to snuggle up with under a tree that I will, no doubt, be sharing with one of our resident meth heads here in Eugene. This is now my life. Stay wild, CNFers, and if you can't do, interview. See you later.